Welcome back to eConversations with Nave, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Today's podcast is the webinar replay of the March 14th webinar on the economic impact of a binding debt ceiling presented by the Nave Policy Roundtable. The webinar is moderated by Danny Backman, Senior Research Leader of Economic Forecasting at Deloitte and co-chair of the NAEP Policy Roundtable. Take it away, Danny. Thank you, Caitlin. I appreciate um, all the work that you're doing and we have a lot of great events coming up. Um, I am uh, the co-chair of NAEP's Policy Roundtable, so uh, this fell to me to um, put together. Uh, and uh, welcome to our webinar on the economic impact of a binding debt ceiling. Now, I know that we had some other financial excitement uh, over the past week or so. But in this hour, we're going to leap over that and look at what may happen, where we might get financial excitement sometime in the future. Um, the US Treasury has a limit on what it can borrow. It's currently $31.4 trillion, but who's counting? Uh, that's the debt ceiling, and I won't go into the history of how we got here, but here we are. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has already announced that the debt ceiling is binding, but Treasury has a number of extraordinary measures that allow it to continue to borrow enough money to pay its bills for a while. Sometime between July and September, according to Treasury, that source of money will be exhausted. At that point, the fact that the federal government can't borrow will effectively prevent Treasury from making some of its required payments. It might be payroll payments, vendor payments, social security payments, and or interest payments. Nobody really knows how likely this scenario might be, but we thought NAVE members would be interested in some thinking about what the economy might look like if this actually happened. Fortunately, two of our longtime members have been thinking about precisely this and are going to share their findings with us. Uh, before I introduce our speakers, I'll explain the format. I've asked um, our speakers to each present their findings for about 15 minutes, and uh, you'll then have the opportunity to, to ask them questions. You can put questions into the chat or the Q&A anytime. I will collect them, and then I will, um, I will feed them to them, uh, and we'll be able to hopefully have an interesting discussion about uh, the possible implications of this. So uh, let me turn to our speakers. I think many of you know Mark, and we at NABE are always happy to, to have Mark in one of our programs. For uh, those needing a reminder, Mark Zandi is Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, where he directs economic research. Um, uh, Moody and Mark is a co-founder of economy.com, which Moody's purchased in 2005. So uh, we'll start with Mark. Mark, uh, tell us about your... Um, about what you found in the scenarios that you or the, the simulations that you ran. Yeah, thanks, Danny. I want to thank you and Nate for the opportunity to participate. And uh, it's good to be on with Joe. Uh, I'll show a few slides. I just for sake of disclosure, I'm on the board of directors of MGIC, which is a publicly traded uh, mortgage insurer and on uh, the board of Coleridge, the Coleridge Initiative, which is a nonprofit that tries to facilitate the use of government data for public policy analysis. Uh, so just uh, for disclosure. So let me uh, share my screen. And I should say that there is a paper out there in the public domain 
entitled going down the debt limit rabbit hole that I would recommend folks uh, avail themselves of. You can Google it and find it. Uh, it goes into more detail than I'll be able to present here in the next 15 minutes. But uh, as Danny alluded to, uh, we've considered a number of different scenarios uh, for how this is all going to play out. So I'll, I'll, uh, And we've used our model of the global economy uh, to uh, help uh, quantify uh, the the uh, economic fallout of these uh, different scenarios. So I'll, I'll walk uh, through that with you. But before I do that, uh, I thought you might want to know when the X date is. Danny, do you want to know the exact day when we're going to run out of cash? Oh, tell me. I always want to know. Stuff yeah, like that. August 18th. Uh, that's right. it. That's the X date, the date that the Treasury runs out of cash. Uh, this kind of gives you a sense of how we get, get that's, there. That's your estimate, right, Mark? That is, in fact, it is. Uh, and I, I have this great uh, economists on staff. Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you because someone might try to steal him from me. So I'm not even going to tell you. No, it's a uh, Bernard Yaros, a great economist who tracks uh, the government spending and revenue on a daily basis. And so has uh, estimated that August 18th, give or take, obviously, uh, because it's a lot, very uncertain in terms of uh, how this all uh, uh, plays out, but August 18th. Um, so my sense is that we're all going to uh, come back after July, the July 4th holiday, and that's when things are really going to start to heat up. And uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be very uncomfortable, uh, I think, as we approach the X date. So uh, late July, early August, I think uh, we'll see uh, a lot of sturm and drang and a lot of drama. Uh, and I think a market reaction, uh, and I think a uh, stock market reaction, bond market reaction, and I think that'll be necessary to convince lawmakers, Republicans, Democrats, to sign on the dotted line and pass a piece of legislation that would uh, uh, increase the debt limit, suspend it, or uh, it would be nice if they got rid of it, but uh, no prospect of that. But August uh, 18th is the uh, is the X date. And the markets are saying roughly the same thing. This shows uh, yields on um, short-term treasury bills uh, maturing, you know, uh, around that August date. And you can see the yields uh, are elevated. That's the, the, the kind of the green dots uh, or squares. Those are, uh, 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 represents the yield on uh, securities that are maturing around that date. And you can see they are relatively elevated compared to securities that mature after that date and before that date. So it feels like investors, market participants who are putting their money where their mouth is uh, are uh, coalescing around uh, an August uh, date as well. But this is particularly bad timing. Uh, you know, obviously the economy is struggling with high inflation, high interest rates, recession risks are high, and confidence is very fragile. Since get a sense of that here, the red line uh, is the uh, Consumer Sentiment Index from the University of Michigan. Uh, and then I'm just uh, visually relating that to Google searches for uh, the words debt ceiling. That's the blue line and government shutdown. Because as you know, uh, two things are going to be happening here. One is uh, uh, the need to e pass legislation to increase the debt limit or suspend it. The other goes to uh, funding the government in the next fiscal year, fiscal year 2024, which begins at the start of October. So those two things are coming together. And in fact, one thing that likely will happen is lawmakers will combine those two things, kind of kick the can down the road. So August 18th will be the X date, but they'll actually kick it down 
to the end of September uh, so that they have to make a decision around both the debt limit and the budget for 2024 at the same time and avoid a government shutdown. Uh, you, you can see uh, during previous debt limit battles, particularly back in 2011, that's kind of the poster child for debt limit battles, uh, that uh, confidence really got nailed. Uh, the other thing you'll notice is that uh, currently confidence is lower than it was at the low point back in that debt limit uh, kerfuffle. So uh, uh, clearly the economy uh, sentiment is uh, pretty dark and fragile. Yeah. This recent uh, uh, turmoil in, in the banking system, the failure of, the, of these banks and the impact that's had, uh, you know, just adds to the kind of the level of angst that's out there. The system, you know, obviously now has a, a lot of government support and uh, should be able to navigate through, but uh, obviously very fragile in this high rate environment. And as I said, recession risks are awfully high. Uh, you know, I don't, I think we have a fighting chance to get through without one. But the bond market certainly doesn't think so. The shape of the yield curve is uh, uh, firmly inverted. Short-term rates are higher than long rates. That's what's shown here. This is the difference between the 10-year yield, treasury yield, and the federal funds rate target. My favorite measure of the curve as a predictor of future recession. I'm showing you monthly data back to the mid-70s. You can see the recession. So those are the red-shaded bars. And prior to every recession, uh, we do uh, have an inversion. I will, uh, just a point of interest, I have a, my own podcast called Inside Economics uh, that I do every week. I think people would enjoy. I had Cam Harvey on. Uh, he's the professor, finance professor from Duke, who kind of popularized the yield curve as a predictor of recession. And uh, uh, very surprisingly, he thinks the yield curve is uh, going to be wrong this time. This time is different. Uh, so you might want to listen into, into that podcast. But uh, the broader point here is that uh, a debt limit battle at any time is a problem, but at the current point in time, it's uh, highly problematic given uh, where the economy is uh, in the business cycle. So as I said, we ran a number of different scenarios uh, and uh, and uh, ran them through our global model. And, and uh, I'm showing, I'll show you a few results here for the unemployment rate, employment and GDP, real GDP. This is the unemployment rate. You can see I'm. Uh, we did the simulation through the 10-year budget horizon through 20, uh, 2033. Uh, there are uh, a, a handful of scenarios. The uh, green uh, line represents a clean debt limit uh, uh, scenario. That is, uh, lawmakers, after uh, some sturm and drang and drama, ultimately pass a piece of legislation increasing the limit and kicking my guess is they'll increase the limit sufficiently to push it to the other side of the presidential election. They don't want to take this up again before the election. So probably enough of a, of a, of a, of an increase to get us into sometime in, in early 2025. Uh, and that would be the most sanguine scenario. You can see unemployment is relatively stable. That's basically our baseline. And I attach a very high probability to that because the alternatives are pretty hard to contemplate. So, you know, you know, we do a lot of scenarios for banks that use it for their uh, capital planning and uh, um, CECL loan loss provisioning, and they need us to attach probabilities to the scenario. So I attach a 95% probability of that clean debt limit scenario, the green line, the, ba the baseline, at least 5% on the tail, which is uh, not very comfortable, but, uh, but uh, still pretty low. Uh, the second scenario uh, that I'll call out uh, is the constitutional crisis. So if 
in my, uh, the debt limit is breached. We come up to the X date, no legislation, and the treasury ha has to make a decision about not paying someone on time. My sense is that the most likely thing is the president, President Biden, will invoke the 14th Amendment, which has a clause that uh, can be used to argue that uh, he uh, uh, needs to pay on the debt, that he'll order the Treasury to continue to pay on it, uh, issue debt and continue to pay on it. Of course, there will be a, a crisis. Uh, he'll be sued, be taken to the Supreme Court. Uh, in this scenario, we assume it takes about four weeks for the Supreme Court to rule, and they rule in favor of the president that it, the debt limit is law is unconstitutional and strikes that down. And so you can see in that scenario, you know, the blue line unemployment does rise to about four and a half percent, right on the edge of recession, doesn't quite go in, but uh, pretty close. Uh, I use four weeks because that's the length of time it took for the Supreme Court to rule on Bush v. Gore, you know, back in that uh, contested election. So probably take about that long uh, in this scenario. Uh, the next scenario is payment prioritization. Uh, and this is, uh, the, the debt limit is breached. Uh, the president does not invoke the 14th Amendment. And, and just by the way, I won't go into it unless there's questions. There's other workarounds that have been suggested, uh, uh, platinum coin, uh, premium bonds, you know, a bunch of other stuff. None of them seem as plausible to me as alternatives than the uh, in, invocation of the 14th Amendment, uh, just for lots of different reasons, which we can talk about. But under the payment prioritization, the, in this case, the Treasury uh, decides to pay bondholders to avoid a, an outright default on the debt, uh, and then uh, pays everyone else uh, uh, late uh, the, and the way it would work and this is based on uh something that came out of i think it's either gao or the congressional research service where they uh thought about you know what could be done here in terms of payment prioritization and what the treasury likely would do was uh not pay anyone in, uh, on a given day until they had the cash to pay everyone on that day so effectively they're not changing the priority of payments for anybody everyone's going to get paid late. Uh, and of course, the longer the drags, this drags on, the later and later those payments uh, those payments get. Uh, uh, I think technically, mechanically, they can do this. Uh, the Treasury makes debt payments off of Fedwire and all the other payments off another accounting system. So they can make kind of that prioritization. I don't think they have the uh, mechanical capability to prioritize other payments because they have to go into the code and software and change things. And I just don't think they, they they can do that or have the capability. And it's probably not legal anyway. So uh, probably won't, won't do that. Under that scenario, you can see we do go into a recession. That's enough to push this fragile economy into recession. Uh, and, um, and, and oh, I am assuming that uh, when, when this happens, there's a, uh, markets lose their minds as they should. Uh, you know, interest rates rise, stock prices fall. Kind of sort of like the TARP uh, moment uh, back uh, in the financial crisis in, in 08 when Congress initially voted down the $700 billion bank auto housing bailout package. Markets lost their minds and Congress quickly reversed themselves within a day or two. That's the kind of thing I expect here. So this is a temporary uh, payment prioritization TARP moment. And you can see we do go into recession of 5% uh, unemployment rate peak in 2024. The 
Uh, fourth scenario is uh, House Republicans get what they want. Uh, basically, you know, they're proposing or they're still working on their proposals, kind of coming out in parts and pieces. But the idea is to balance the budget by 2033 over the next 10 years, which would require pretty massive cuts in spending, $16 trillion in total over the 10-year period. Uh, they've said they're not going to touch Social Security, Medicare. There will be no tax increases. So the way we assume they get uh, to a balanced budget is that they effectively eliminate all non-defense discretionary spending. You know, that's a potpourri of stuff from NASA to housing to transportation, you know, a bunch of stuff there. And uh, they'll also have to effectively eliminate the Medicaid program. That's the healthcare program for uh, low-income households. And you can see that's a pretty difficult scenario. We go right into recession and uh, unemployment gets to a peak of about 6% by the end of 2024 going into 2025. Ultimately, the economy kind of uh, stabilizes and normalizes, but it takes about a decade for the unemployment rate to get back to something more consistent with the, with the baseline. And then finally, the... Uh, darkest scenario, I call it a prolonged breach. Uh, uh, we get a breach and the treasury starts to prioritize payments. And instead, of, and there's a TARP moment. Congress does not respond uh, quickly. Uh, and uh, they let this drag on through October up until Thanksgiving. And then they uh, sign on the dotted line. Uh, and you can see the damage there is uh, serious. The uh, this GFC-like kind of recession, uh, 4% peak to trough decline in GDP, the unemployment rate goes to 8%. The economy loses about 7 million jobs at the peak. It's a mess. Uh, so uh, I think it's fair to say if lawmakers don't figure this out uh, in time and let this drag on for any length of time, uh, it'll be cataclysmic. Finally, let me just end by saying, obviously, this is all in this 10-year budget horizon, I, I think it's fair to say if there's any breach uh, of the of the limit, then uh, in, global investors are going to attach a, a, a risk premium to interest rates. We are going to have to pay more. The reserve currency status of the dollar will be diminished significantly. And over time, I think uh, will be uh, a shadow of what it is today. And our uh, economic prospects will be uh, uh, much dimmer uh, than it would otherwise be the case. Very silly uh, to do this, and thus 95% probability they won't, uh, but nonetheless, you know, something to that we need to contemplate. Danny, with that, I'll stop and uh, turn it back to you. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Um, that was great. I mean, thinking about it, the, the actual thing isn't great, but uh, your explanations were were very helpful. Uh, keep in mind that you can put questions in the Q&A, and after our speakers finish, I will um, I will facilitate those. So as you listen to the speakers, go ahead and type your questions in. Our second speaker is Joe Brucellis. He is the chief economist of RSM, which supplies audit, tax, and consulting services to middle market companies. Joe's career includes stints as an economist at Bloomberg and at Moody's Analytics. So I guess we have a reunion of sorts here, which I'm happy to facilitate. Um, so Joe, let's hear what uh, you found when you started to think about this problem. Uh, you're on mute, I believe. Thank you. It's good to be talking with everybody and good to always talk to my fellow economists in NABE. So what we wanted to do was to conduct a couple simulations 
that use both the 2011 debt ceiling debacle and the 2008 financial crisis as a benchmark to explore what might happen should the political authority tempt fate. So what we put together was a very standard, just a standard vector, vector autoregression model. We use uh, the Chicago Board of Exchange Options Volatility Index as a proxy for financial and economic risk and uncertainties. And we use one-year credit default swap rate as a proxy for credit risks. Now, the reason why we did that is that both are leading indicators when shocks take place. And essentially, that's what we're doing, whereas Mark used the, the, the quite good, excellent, actually, um, Moody's uh, global economic model. We went ahead and just decided to try to model some shocks here to, to, to get an idea of what it might look like under a couple different uh, scenarios. Now, the choice of proxies was motivated by the anticipation that financial markets would be the initial channel through which the economy would be subject to stress. Now, our findings indicate that the, the, the proxies, as you would expect, have very strong correlations and they got a 95% confidence interval. So I'm gonna share my, my screen here with, with you guys. Uh, Excuse, excuse me for the technical difficulties here. Um, my, my slide deck is not actually uh, working at the time. So I'll just talk to you then. What, what we found out essentially when we conducted what we call just for lack of a better term an extended or technical default um, and modeled it after the, the debt ceiling crisis in 2011 what we essentially saw was that it would tip GDP into recession uh, by the fourth quarter. You would lose roughly about 8 million jobs and you would see inflation uh, ease significantly um, in, the, in the following quarters. Now, when we went ahead and we modeled the, uh, the more dire scenario, which is that we actually default it, it did look a lot like the, the great financial crisis. What you saw, what you would expect to see is a loss of around 23 million jobs and inflation within two years moved back towards 8% after a sharp decline uh, later in the year and into early next year. Essentially under a more, a more benign scenario, we see the unemployment rate move from the current 3.6 to roughly 7%, and you get fairly large declines in, in GDP. Now, it's important to make to understand, to, for me to remind everybody here that you can already see stress in the financial system just due to the onset of the debt ceiling uh, debacle that we're probably we're likely to uh, go through. We, the things we're looking at right now are one in three year credit default swaps. You can see that they've moved higher on the United States debt. You can take a look at the price of commercial paper. You can even take a look at where interest rates have gone on credit cards, although I know that that's not necessarily caused by the debt ceiling. Uh, it, it's often useful to remind people, I, I, I find that um, the average interest rate in a credit card according to the Federal Reserve is 19%. 
So if there is a, a period where we do enter technical default or outright default, you will, you will see stress in that metric very quickly. And we are attempting to craft a proxy for um, what we call the, the real economy. Those the, the companies that aren't public and the rates that they would likely be facing to fund their own expansion. We'll be out with that shortly. And I would expect going forward, we're gonna model the what an interest rate shock would look like around this. But because we have a lot of time, evidently we have till August 18th to do all that and put it all together. Uh, we'll have more uh, to talk about on this. Again, our base case is that this isn't going to happen. We think that the 11th hour of the 11th day, they'll cut a deal. My, my instinct is a non-binding agreement to look at some sort of spending. Um, that may be a little bit optimistic, but that, that's my view. Um, when we talk to our policy vendor in Washington about this, what we're told is that Congress will really feel the need to get this out of the way before they go home. And so that for recess, so that will help, I think on the margin, uh, cause a solution to this. Uh, I agree with everything Mark said about prioritization. We uh, just don't think that that's, that's actually workable. During the time when I worked at Bloomberg, for those of you who have Bloomberg terminals, we built quite a bit around the debt ceiling in 2011. Um, if you're, I highly recommend go taking a look at that. It's, it's quite good and it'll give you something to, uh, to talk to your client base about. In addition, Bloomberg does track uh, private holders of uh, US government securities, and you can see who holds what percentage. And essentially, it's one of the reasons why I don't think prioritization would work, would work because I doubt there's no senator or congressman who's gonna to want to explain why they're paying BlackRock rather than funding their grandmother's social security payments. So there's quite a bit there. All right, I'm gonna, we're at, we're at 11.30. I think that's Mark, Danny, back to you. Okay, thanks, thanks, Joe. And um, sorry, the slides didn't work, but um, yep. everyone, uh, if you if you Google Joe's blog, uh, just his name in the blog, or the blog is called the Real What's it called? The Real Economy. Yeah, the Real Economy. The Real Economy blog. He has a complete description of these uh, of these scenarios there. So uh, I definitely suggest I you have a look at that. And I'll make sure Caitlin gets them and anybody who wants a copy, I'm happy to give it to them. Um, so uh, again, I suggest that you, um, uh, we're happy to have questions, but being the moderator, I will uh, take my opportunity to, to give you a, a couple to begin with uh, that you can each react to. Uh, one of them has to do with the reaction if we get to uh, actual non-payment that X day. Uh, I was wondering whether or not we, we we kind of think of that as being like an atomic bomb going off or something. But I was wondering if maybe markets will have some forbearance and for some period of time, shorter or longer, a uh, a breach of the debt ceiling will result in. Um, pricing some some oddities in treasury pricing, but not necessarily a full scale uh, re rethinking of uh, of treasury prices. Does that make any sense to you? How do you think that might work out? Is that to me or to Mark? Uh, um, both of you. Okay, I'll I'll take it first. Sure. My sense is is that markets will anticipate what's happening, and you'll start to see problems. Are 
stress in equity prices, in treasury prices, corporate consumer confidence, probably earlier in the summer. So a lot of it will already be built in. So you may have a period of 24 to 48 hours of quiescence. But if it looks like there's no agreement, you'll see an adverse reaction. And I'm fairly confident of that. Mark? Well, um, yeah, I think it's possible. Uh, so we're, the scenario is now we breached, uh, or the Treasury is prioritizing payments by making payments to bondholders uh, and not and paying everyone else, but uh, delayed until they have enough cash to pay on a daily basis. And it is possible that you know markets, uh, investors don't run for the door. I, now I'm assuming they they will. That's what I mean by a tarp moment. It's possible they don't. Uh, you know they they may think, okay, I'm getting paid, so they are prioritizing me. They the lawmakers. And therefore, you know, I'm 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 going to hang tough here. I I don't think anyone's going to be buying bonds, but at least they're not going to be dumping them. So you know, yields will come under pressure, will start to rise, but they won't they won't jump. They won't go skyward. Um, I think though, if that's the scenario, that makes me even more nervous because then lawmakers will say, "Oh, this is working out just fine. I can do this for a while." <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, they need the pressure. Someone's got to be calling them up and saying, hey, guys, what in the world are you doing? You know, you idiots, you know, got to sign on the dotted line. And if no one's doing that, uh, if markets aren't screaming bloody murder, they may not. Uh, they might not get the votes to do it. Uh, and this drags on. And at some point, it's just completely politically untenable to pay bondholders over Social Security recipients. The military, even the electric bill for a federal government building in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm just making that up. But can you imagine you're going to pay a Chinese bondholder or a, a Saudi bondholder, even a Japanese or British bondholder before you're going to pay my 85-year-old grandmother her Social Security check on time? I don't think so. I don't think that lasts. And you know, bond investors are going to bail. They're going to say, oh, this is this is not... This isn't going to work out in my favor. And then they're going to start selling. And the selling is going to be, you know, at that point, even more serious. And the TARP moment probably even bigger and deeper and darker and so forth and so on. So I'm not sure that scenario is any better uh, than the my TARP moment scenario. Maybe it may end up being even worse, uh, you know, uh, than, uh, than the TARP, TARP moment. Uh, one more question before I turn to the Q&A. Um, so the assumption is that global investors will sell treasuries and presumably the dollar is going to fall. And Mark, since you have the full model, I imagine there's some significant decline in the dollar. And, and um, since I no longer work in the US government where we always said only the treasury secretary talks about the dollar, Maybe you can tell us what happens to the dollar in your scenario. Well, in the uh, in the breach scenarios, uh, you know, payment prioritization or the prolonged breach scenario, the dollar actually initially rises. Uh, you know, because it's like complete chaos, panic, uh, and even though we're the source of the panic and the chaos, you know, money 
is looking for a safe haven, you know, the safest haven as they can find. So I suspect we might even see a, you know, a strengthening, not for very long, but a strengthening initially in the dollar. Probably people just going into cash, you know, basically going into cash. Uh, and then pretty soon, you know, the dollar will come under uh, pressure. Uh, and then in the long run, longer run, I think the dollar will be uh, significantly diminished. Uh, I mentioned uh, its loss of reserve currency status. You know, the dollar is already under pressure. Uh, if you look at the dollar hold, the share of, of reserves that are held in dollars around the world, that's been steadily falling for the past I think several decades. Uh, still, you know, we're still the reserve currency by orders of magnitude, but the euro and uh, the pound, the yen, you know, the Chinese yuan, even you know, are gaining traction in terms of share of reserves. And we kind of added a little bit of uncertainty with regard to the reserve currency status when we uh, froze Russian assets, uh, reserve uh, dollar reserves, you know, as sanctions. That was the first set of sanctions that were imposed on the Russians. Uh, is uh, is uh, freezing those uh, reserves, and you know I I'm not, I I think that was a reasonable policy, but you know that does create some angst among, particularly uh, countries that are kind of broken, nefarious uh, kind of uh, leadership. Uh, you know they they they're you know I'm sure they're nervous about their dollar holdings as well if they run uh, you know afoul of the of the U.S. government. So it's already under pressure. Uh, and so I do accept, I would think this would also, because, uh, you know, then it, it also uh, diminish our status geopolitically. Uh, you know, I think uh, people would turn to alternatives uh, and uh, China would be one of those alternatives. Uh, and of course, China is formidable competition already on uh, ver uh, lots of different levels. So, uh, you know, I think our, our reserve status would would uh, diminish over time. And, you know, it's hard to uh, overestimate the value of that reserve currency status uh, to this nation, particularly in times of crisis. And, you know, it's not that big a deal when things are going swimmingly, but when things are coming off the rails, uh, that reserve currency status is pretty damn handy, uh, you know, and really uh, reduces cost to us. It's a great uh, um, uh, uh, benefit to us, a great responsibility, but a great benefit to us as well. And that would be, I think, severely jeopardized uh, in those scenarios, those those breach scenarios. Joe, I know uh, your model didn't have exchange rates in it, but do you have any comments about that? Sure. Well, what, like like interest rates, where we were waiting on that as we got closer to the day. Um, what I would do is I'd look at the 2008 uh, crisis and look at the US dollar depreciated against the euro during the initial phase of the, the, the great financial crisis. And that's what I would expect to see. And I concur with Mark on the United States gets enormous prestige privilege and is able to run very large uh, deficits because of its reserve currency status. And um, because it has increased recently, especially after the invasion of Ukraine, I think this is something that uh, people should push to remind uh, the political authority of this because it's it would not it is not in the interest of the United States or its economy to that a uh, political dispute spill over into uh, the denigration of the, the dollar and the loss of the reserve currency status that it currently holds. Okay, let's let's turn to a few questions. Um, uh, this is this is an interesting um, 
one which is a little inside baseball, I guess, but sequestration, because I think there was just an announcement, one of those sequestration uh, uh, announcements that's required by law. So, so the question is, where does sequestration come in here? How does it, does it interplay with any of the other things we've been talking well, about? Well, my sense here is, is that it's likely not on the table. The, the, the issue here is because of the thin majority in the United States House of Representatives, uh, a small faction can engage in a hostage taking action essentially, right? So when you take a step back and you look at the, the composite of the House majority, where, where, this, where the problem is really gonna come from, I don't think that they have a working majority that would be okay with sequestration simply because the populist nature of the party has changed. Um, so I, I just don't think that that's on the table. Maybe Mark has a different view. Well, uh, I, I suppose it, a lot to be revealed here uh, you know, over the course of time by the folks in the Republican House. Uh, but the what they have put forward in pieces uh, uh, is a form of sequestration, right? It's like, I want to get the uh, budget back to balance in 2033, and I, I don't want to cut Social Security. I don't want to cut Medicare. I don't want to raise taxes. So I got to cut other stuff, and it's it, it, they are stepping down the government spending over that period to get back to balance. Uh, just a, So it's a form of sequestration, right? It's effectively sequestration. Uh, and uh, I, I, one thing I'd point out is uh, to get there on paper, to get from here to a balanced budget on paper is about $16 trillion in cuts. And that's a, I don't know if I said this in my remarks, I, it's kind of a blur, but to, the last few days have been a couple, like a blur, there are a lot of lots going on, but uh, that's on a static basis. You know, that's not on a dynamic basis. On a dy dynamic means, you know, you take a look at the effects of the cuts on the economy, which will be smaller as a result of the cuts, and that'll affect tax revenue and spending as well. And so to, it, to get to actual balanced budget on, in reality by 2033, it's going to be more than $16 trillion in cuts. You know, it's like you're chasing, they're going to be chasing their tail down, you know, down the rabbit hole, like, like the title of my paper. So it, it's going to be incredibly it's just not going to happen. I mean, it, of course, but it's just complete, uh, uh, incredibly draconian. But what what they're proposing, or at least what they seemingly are proposing, because again, there's not a lot of detail here yet, is a form of, it's effectively sequestration. Well, it's, it's a little different because sequestration covers everything uh, in, a, in the same level, and they're trying to, to make carve-outs on yeah. it. Oh yeah, right. Also, uh, but isn't I mean I mean the the budget the budget issue that's coming up and Mark you mentioned this and um, that we do have a budget coming up. We're not even thinking about the fact that the government might shut down if they're if the appropriations bills aren't passed. But um, doesn't sequestration impose requirements on on spending? That is, does it require congressional action or does it just happen? Oh, uh, I think under the, I'm not, uh, 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 that's too deep in the weeds. I, I mean, I think the Budget Control Act uh, 
has a mechanism for those cuts. But I guess I think I, I, I don't know. I'll stop. I'm not sure whether it requires legislation or not. I, I suspect it does, but I don't know for sure. Maybe the person who asked the question does knows the answer. We'll we'll have to have another policy uh, policy webinar and get some people who know the budget I I really know. well. I guess. Um, uh, another question here just came up. Uh, do the events related to um, SVB and Signature Bank, you know, the things that have been happening in the past few days, are they going to influence the debt ceiling issue at all, do you think? Go ahead, Joe. Oh, okay, sure. Um, well, you can, one can see the distaste at which the term bailout is used. And my sense is that one portion of the political spectrum can free ride on this, right? That the, the ring fencing of depositors proportionately, I think, in protects many small and region, regional size, regional banks, small and mid-sized banks, regional banks um, that a lot of, you know, businesses tend to use and more people tend to use. And so my sense is, is that this probably doesn't play very well and it will be part of the discussion about spending public expenditures, the debt and the deficits. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not optimistic that this is going to uh, play well around the debt ceiling debate. It just poisons the waters further is sort of my sense here. Well, Mark? yeah, I, uh, I my my sense is that the the this uh, set of events are, are going to uh, fade away pretty quickly. Uh, that the crisis this uh, the, 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 that was precipitated by the bank failures will be short lived, uh, and that goes to the government backstop, which has been very aggressive, which I think entirely appropriate. Uh, I think uh, ensuring or guaranteeing all depositors makes an, uh, sig uh, very uh, makes a lot of sense in the context of the systemic risks that were involved here. So it would be kind of silly not to go uh, to, to do that. And I think it's it's not I think it's paid by or by the FDIC's diff fund. It's 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 right. paid. It's not taxpayer paid. Uh, I believe that'll the way it ends up. So I don't think taxpayers should be dinged here, you know, for this. But but uh, but I do think by that putting that back that very strong backstop in place, this is going to fade uh, as an issue because uh, the, the banking system is in good shape. I mean, uh, objectively in good shape. I mean, incredibly well capitalized because of all the regulatory changes Dodd Frank post financial crisis. You know, uh, yes, the uh, SVB made some really hard to understand asset liability mismatch decisions, but I don't think that's common across the banking system. And they're liquid; they're highly liquid. And with that that new uh, facility set up by the Fed, I think they can tap into their securities that are now underwater because of the run up in interest rates. Um, so. Uh, you know, my sense is that the system is going to find its footing here pretty quickly, and this is going to fade as an issue. And if it does, then it's not going to enter into the debt limit 
debate because I again I don't think that heats up until after July fourth. Uh, you know I don't think that's going to be the case. If I'm so wrong, we've forgotten about it. Yeah, we're going to forget about it. Uh, or you know, it, yeah, uh, I won't forget about it. But <laughs> you won't forget about it. But most people are going to forget about it. Congress is going to forget about it. But uh, uh, but if I'm wrong, obviously, and this thing has a tail, or there's another shoe to fall, or you know, I'm not, I'm missing something, which is entirely possible. And this thing continues on, then that's definitely going to have an impact on the debate. I think it actually reduces the odds that uh, these guys, the, these guys, lawmakers will want to go to battle over the debt limit. Uh, it, it's just a bad look, you know, when the economy, banking system is under pressure and economy struggling. So I, I think it's more likely if that's the case, then, you know, they they come to terms because they got bigger problems to address, uh, be my sense of it. Okay, thanks. Um, <clears throat> one further question here, which Mark gets excused from answering, uh, which is um, thinking about the probability of a, of a ratings downgrade. Of whom? Of the U.S. government, I assume. Oh, 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 oh! I see. I was, I saw yeah. on the bank crisis. Now we're back to the. We're the, back to the. the yeah, we're back to our actual subject. Yeah, yeah right. So I, right. I, I, if Joe wants to say anything, he can. But I'm sure, Mark, that you're. <laughs> well, I will say, I will say, Moody's. You, you might want to look. There's a FAQ that they put out. The rating agency put out. We got a great analyst a guy named Bill Foster. Came from Treasury, who runs the committee on ratings and. He lays out very clearly, you know, what it would take to get a, a downgrade. Uh, so you, you might want to avail yourselves of that. And, and it, you know, generally speaking, uh, it, you, the government has to not prioritize. It has to not make an interest payment. It defaults and gets, it gets downgraded. But, uh, but, but I'm speaking in broad terms. You might want to just take a look at that, at that FAQ. Well, I would think that... Uh... Probably we don't get a downgrade unless there's an actual outright default and they miss payments. Okay, so similar. That's fair enough. Yeah. Um, let me let me turn. I want to follow up on one of my questions just briefly. And, and I should say, yeah. just in case no people know, I'm not on, I'm not in the rating agency. I, I I don't have any inside information. So I just. Just so that make make that clear, yeah. Right. Well, of course, that's yeah. why I said you didn't have to answer the question, but I think you yeah. you had but, a great answer. You know, you know me, Danny. I, you know, I'll answer anything. So, um, uh, so I just want to go back to this international thing. Um, if people are going to find that treasuries are no longer, if they believe the treasuries are no longer secure assets, what are they going to buy? Mark, I have to be honest, you said something about China, and I have a lot of trouble getting my head around China, you know, Chinese assets being actual alternatives to U.S. treasuries. But um, uh, what do you think? Where where might the money go? Well, I, I only said it in the context of it, if you look at the share of reserves that are in yuan, it's small, but it is it's rising. I mean, you know, it was zero not too long ago. It's I'm making this up, but I, I, if you told me it's three, four, five, six percent of outstanding reserves, I, it feels about right to me, you know, something like that. And they're working really hard, the Chinese, to uh, try to ensure a broader use of the yuan in global transactions. You know, they're 
uh, trying to set up buy purchases of oil in non-dollar uh, currency, including the yuan. So I, I wouldn't count them out as you know, a, not not that they're going to be twenty percent of of a country's reserves, but something more than a few percentage points. But you know, there's the euro, uh, you know, the pound, the yen. I think it's a combination of a, a basket of currencies, not just not not just one. So uh, and it doesn't take a lot. I, I can't I can't quite remember, but I think the dollar is probably. But do you know, Danny? Is it? Two thirds of reserves now, something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, it's it's actually more than that. Depends on how you count that? Them. Okay, but but it's but but even if you think of safe assets, right? So the treasury market is huge, and if a chunk of money drops from the treasury market into, let's say, the market for bunks, see, that's that's what I'm thinking about. Is that the kind of thing that might happen? Yeah, I I think it. You know, it's one of those things that demand creates its own supply you know if you know it's like if the dollar isn't what we thought it was uh you know euro assets are then you know people will figure out how to issue more debt in euro uh so there'll be mm. assets to buy uh so the financial system is pretty creative that way you know if, if there's you know people are a little nervous about this over here they'll figure out a way to sell whatever it is over uh, over on the other side and so i i wouldn't I wouldn't, I, I don't, I, it's one of those things where you can't really, you don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but the economics are such that you have a pretty good sense of, that the dollar is going to be a much lower share of, of the reserve base, you know, uh, as, as a result of this. And that, of course, it does depend on the scenario and how it all plays out. I mean, actually, the constitutional crisis scenario where the president invokes the 14th Amendment and wins in the Supreme Court, that's a pretty good scenario, actually, uh, because it obviates the debt limit and and I think it actually enhances the you know, you know the security of investing in the United States. You don't have this debt limit battle every 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 few years, and people know they're going to get paid on time. That's a good point, Joe. Euro and euro denominated assets, yen and yen denominated assets. Japan, I think, holds about thirteen percent of the treasury uh, total treasury debt. So that you know, it makes it makes a lot of sense to me that that would be where. We, we would see uh, migration of capital on a global basis. And let me say, I'm in full agreement with Mark that that, uh, that would be a good scenario. And I think that we should get rid of this debt ceiling uh, requirement as soon as is reasonable. Okay, if Nate could vote, I suppose. <laughs> um, uh, another question, this is interesting, I hadn't thought about, uh, state and local governments. What's likely to happen uh, to the fiscal status of state and local governments? Well, if there's a downgrade, uh, that, you know, I mean, if 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 there's a, a, a default, I mean, the and, and a downgrade, uh, then there's a cascade of downgrades, right? I mean, because uh, uh, all of the uh, institutions uh, uh, that are backstopped in some way by the federal government uh, will be... Uh, less viable because they don't that backstop is worth less. So you downgrade the U.S. debt, and then you you're going to downgrade Fannie Freddie. You're going to downgrade federal home loan banks. You're going to downgrade big SIFI banks. You're going to downgrade you know state and local governments because at the end of the day, the government, as we saw in the last couple of days, is the backstop. You know it comes in and it saves the day when the when things are going off the rails. And if that backstop is less of a backstop, then everyone is 
going to uh, struggle with that. And of course, the, the lesser credits, the ones, the state and local uh, government entities, and there's a lot of them that are kind of down and uh, down uh, lower in the uh, in terms of their ability to generate revenue, they're going to be, you know, they're they're going to be hit a lot harder. So, um, you know, I think that's the darkest scenario for state and local government is if there's actually a, a downgrade, uh, because at that point, then uh, their cost of funding is going to rise, you know, you know quite dramatically. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, it depends again on the scenario. But if you're in a world where there's payment prioritization, I, I assume the state and local governments. <laughs> Are going to be in the Q2 uh, and not getting their money mm -hmm. on time, uh, and you know they're getting you know, their checks aren't just you know I'm sure the federal government's a okay payer now it'll become a pretty bad payer pretty quickly so that will start to affect state and local government's ability to kind of finance their you know day to day operations pretty fast I would think. Joe, any comments? No, that was, <laughs> Mark outlined it. Very well. I just it's why it's not going to happen. And it's why uh, Janet Yellen called it chaos, because that's what it would look like. I, I just, you know, I have to say in response, I'm just wondering if an initial response might be, well, if the Fed's not the federal government's not paying us, but the economy is still fundamentally sound in the sense that it can pay state and local debt might be a, an intermediary, you know, you you go out of treasuries and pick up short-term state and local debt. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good yeah. point. At least for a while. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, I think we're we're coming to the end here. So um, I'd like to thank you both for for spending the time answering the questions, giving us the benefit of your of your wisdom and knowledge. This is. Uh, I think this is all going to be helpful. Uh, certainly for me, I know that I'm going to be able to take this back. It's going to help me uh, talk to my clients. And I think that's true for, for everyone on this call. So thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with Nave. Be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications to stay up to date with our latest releases. We hope to see you at our 39th annual NAEP Economic Policy Conference, March 28th through 30th in Washington, D.C. Arranged around the theme, Orienting Policy for a Polarized World, the conference assesses challenges facing global policy and business leaders as they navigate their countries and their companies through uncertain economic times, marked by geopolitical instability and mounting price pressures, and enduring tests such as climate change, fiscal imbalances, and income inequality. The program features familiar names in the economic space like Michael Barr, Susan Collins, Philip Swagel, and Janet Yellen. Please go to nape.com slash PC2023 for more information and to register.